All right. Well, I am here with a very special guest on today's episode of Sakas Is That So, introducing Lolita, who is the GP from Ghana's Ventures. Welcome to the show, Lolita. Thank you for that wonderful welcome. And who does not love your voice? <laughs> Thank you very much. I think I have a voice for radio, hence why I started a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on today's show, we're going to go through quite a lot in a short time frame, but I'd like to start off with what is Ghana's Ventures and why did you start it? Sure. So Ghana's Ventures is a pre-seed and seed community-driven uh, fund that's investing in community-driven startups, Web 2 through Web 3 in the U.S. and LATAM. We're writing 100K checks, and we recently just launched publicly on March 8th. And something that's a little bit different than most funds is we announced our launch. We had only raised 1.2 out of the 10. We're actively fundraising. And the reason why we're doing it is because of what I said, we're community driven. We want to bring the community in um, and have representation of our community, but also extend our arms length in terms of deal flow, folks to support our portfolio companies, so on and so forth. And so we're very excited to, to welcome um, folks on board. And so far, as I was mentioning prior to us starting to record, we have had nearly 8.5 million in expressed LP interest. So let's see how all this pans out. But it's very exciting to be doing um, fundraising and venture capital in a different way and, and just seeing how, how things pan out and the power of community. Fantastic. So, I mean, you're at this point now, but you were sort of in venture before venture was cool and hit before everyone got into it. So <laughs> I want to take a step back to understand what made you first get into it. And then when did the first uh, step start to get into motion for you to actually start to, you know, get your fund into to reality? Yeah, uh, I try to make this answer interesting every time because it is a question I get often. I think, you know, what I'll say is this, I think for everyone, it looks very different. And most people like to start with, well, I come from a non-traditional background. And that's actually quite true. Aren't we all in venture capital? That's just the TLDR. And then something magical happened and we decided it was time for to get into venture capital. For me, it was really... Um, uh, I was in corporate. So, you know, my whole career, just to give you like a big picture corporate uh, and then startups and then venture capital, that's been 15 years of my life. BC has been six. So how did I get from one to another? And, and really, if I am going to be honest, um, my dad passed away uh, when I was 23, I became a matriarch and that made me step back and ask myself what I was doing with my life and who I was serving and who I was supporting. Even though I was doing a sales job, I always thought this way because I don't know, I think it's a cultural thing or maybe how my parents raised me. Um, but I had a very, uh, one day I'll die, I won't take everything. So what do I really want to do with my life? And um, at the time I was actually working at Cisco and I was selling technology, hardware, software services to Native American tribes. And a tribal chief became my mentor. And one of the things that he asked me was who I was a leader for. And I said, what, what do you mean? I'm not a leader. I'm just like an employee and I'm just trying to figure out life because my dad passed away and I'm a matriarch now and I don't know. And he, he really, you know, he was very patient with me, first of all. I'm glad he made some, some space for me. Um, but what he really you know, asked me in that question was, 
what's your place in the world and what do you stand for? And that's literally what he asked me right, right after. And I had to really think about it and I didn't quite know, but you know, we had a conversation. I said, well, I work with a community of white cisgendered males and we talk about technology and then I sell it to them. And then it made me think like, is that really what I want to be doing in my life? Um, the tech part is really interesting, but is white cisgendered male, is that my tribe? Is that my community? And I was thinking in terms of tribes because I was working with tribes. And um, that was the beginning of a project that I did called the F Show. And the F Show was a love project, um, which I tried to make into a startup, but it failed because I knew nothing about startups. But essentially what, what came out of it was 100 interviews with women founders from 18 different countries around the world. And without wanting to find this, I find this pattern of these incredible women with great business ideas that are having a really hard time raising capital. And on the flip side, I was thinking, well, I'm like a person who's always selling and trying to make money. Um, there's a lot of money being left on the table. And so the TLDR is after that, I, I was on a hunt to figure out how do I change this? How do I get capital to these women who are doing really well? And then learning organically by jumping into the world of startups in Silicon Valley and New York and so on, understanding that there's this concept of venture capital and you're actually in charge of putting dollars into the companies, into the future unicorn founders, into the future businesses that will shift the world. And, and so my tech nerd brain and, and then you know this, this new mission that I had found made sense that I would become a tech writer. So that meant that my next goal was to become a check writer. There's money on the table. Apparently the homogeneous community that's investing in the homogeneous founders, which still is a problem, um, that's a problem and I have an edge and I see something different and there's money that, there's, there's, there's money to be made. And also there's a whole community to bring along with us. And so that started my trek down venture capital and six years later, uh, after volunteering, working at accelerators, being a scout, angel investing, starting a fund, um, I'm at 91 portfolio companies and launching my second fund, but my first solo fund. So there you go. That's, uh, that's the journey. <laughs> awesome. Wow. That's been an amazing journey. And I wanted to touch on something that we both have in common. So both of us are sort of immigrants to America and they always say that, you know, work hard and you can achieve the American dream. But when you start to realize that, hey, even the janitors work hard, it doesn't mean they're gonna end up, you know, being successful. Yeah. So you start to so understand true. that it's not just about working hard, that there's much more to it. And then you start to go through these levels of understanding that, okay, there's a capitalistic system and then financial literacy and then investing and all those kinds of things. But I wanted to understand from your perspective, what were your thoughts when you first sort of came to America or started to understand this sort of ecosystem where you're told work hard and, you know, you can achieve your dreams versus yeah. the reality behind closed doors, which is it's not just about working hard. There's who you know, there's investments, there's all those kinds of things. Yeah. And and I have to say that I was very fortunate. So I grew up uh, I, I am an, a child of an immigrant, of immigrant parents, or I'm not an immigrant myself. So just, uh, I, I don't want to misrepresent there, but I did grow up with what you just said, uh, work hard and good things will come from it. And close to what you've shared, it's, that's not the case always. And it's 
what it looks like for one person from one socioeconomic spectrum to the 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 other side of the spectrum looks very different and means very different things. One can mean you work to the bone and you hardly have money to pay for rent or food and don't have insurance, which I will tell you, like when my dad passed away, we went through bankruptcy. We didn't have insurance. Um, we lost the house. We lost everything. It was a very cathartic moment of knowing that my dad didn't take a vacation until he was in a coma his last week of life was his vacation. So when we talk about, you know, working hard, it gets you somewhere. That was an example of how it wasn't. And the other thing is I was really fortunate that I was able to um, get a scholarship to go to Phillips Academy Andover, which is one of the top schools in the world where the top 1% send their kids. And here was this poor girl from South Central Los Angeles hanging out with people who grew up in castles, who had private jets to, to fly them around, to take them to New York to get a tan. And I was struggling to buy a bagel. Um, and, and this was just the, I started to see the disparities and that working smart was actually the thing I needed to achieve, but that we also, those that come from um, humble beginnings also need to work hard. There's no way around it. There's people who say just work smart. But the thing is that, there are some who can have the luxury of just working smart. I think the reality is that we have to work hard and we have to work smart. And for me, I think what gets me here, what gets me to venture capital is literally finding a thread and being so curious and being so dedicated to there's opportunity in all of us who are being underestimated and underestimated, not meaning underrepresented. Underrepresented is quotas, is do we have the same amount of whatever. Underestimated, um, which I love and, and definitely inspired by, by Arlen's um, thought leadership is really around, you have the capacity, if we're talking about founders, underestimated founders, you have the capacity to build unicorns, decacorns, but you're overlooked because you don't fit the status quo of Silicon Valley. Or you're an underestimated GP, um, a fund manager, because you don't fit the status quo um, Silicon Valley model of what a fund manager should look like. The reality is life is tough. And if you do know what you're going towards and you're curious about it and you're willing to put in the work, I do think that you start to uncover things that you didn't even know existed. And for me, that's what happened. Um, I didn't know what venture capital was, and now I do, and this is going to be my life forever. <laughs> That's awesome. And I know that community is a big thing for you. Why is it such a big deal, community, tribes, all those kinds of things? Why, why is it important to you? Yeah. Um, so if we go back to little baby Lolita, who grew up in South Central, um, my and immigrants, immigrant parents who left their families and everything behind, community was everything we had in terms of food security and physical security. So when you hear of the Bloods and the Crips or straight out of watch straight out of Compton, that's where I grew up and community was who held it together because sometimes the police wouldn't even come and show up because they were scared of what was that happening in, in you know, what people refer to as the ghetto. And so from a personal perspective, it was important from that, from that side of things. As I started uh, going through my journey, um, I was always, leading clubs or being part of clubs. And, and that's really always, I notice actually in retrospect that I've always been in communities, community curator, member, 
um, leader, whatever. But throughout my life, there's just a, something inside of me that draws me to it. I think it has to do with this, again, how I grew up and the importance it played in my survival, literally in our survival. And then going into the corporate world, doing B2B sales. B2B sales is team sales. It's a community-driven effort. And understanding the power in business and understanding then the evolution of what has happened between the web two, web one, web two, web three, um, as we're evolving and the sales um, sales mechanism and uh, strategies that we've that we've used. First, it was sell to C-suite. Next is sell to uh, department leaders. Next is sell to users. We're now in the era of community. And not to say we're not using the other strategies, but the power of community, when you have a group of people who are your clients and they identify as a member of your community, they have a space to create value for each other and they kick off that marketing sales flywheel, there's so many benefits that come from that. There is basically, if you need talent, you have a talent pool. If you need product feedback, you can use that. They're also spreading um, the gospel on your product or service uh, and so that increases your, 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 uh, your LTB, lowers your CAC, right? Your customer acquisition cost. And so it started off community being really important from a personal perspective and has evolved to being both really important as a human perspective, because I love to do things in community and build things together. It just feels so good. But then also it's like a really awesome uh, thesis from an investment perspective when you see companies like Airbnb and Reddit and Glossier and Peloton and MongoDB, all these great unicorns and even now starting to look at decacorns and you say, okay, you know what? Again, there's something, there's money being left on the table uh, investing in these types of companies and I wanna go after it. And also it'll be fun because we get to do it in community. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And actually speaking on the theme of community, there are different communities that you must touch on as a GP. There's the LP community, there are your fellow GPs, and then there's the startup community for deal flow and things of that nature. And I want to touch on the LP community. I imagine when you mm -hmm. first started off, you're probably going to friends and family, trying to see if you could raise from them. But then very quickly, you probably realized I need some very high net worth individuals or family offices or whatever it is in my community or in my tribe to believe in what I'm doing. So let's talk about when you decided to raise publicly versus do it in private and how you found a community of investors and things of that nature. I think before I even started fundraising, right, and, and coming to a decision to launch a fund, which is a really big compromise, it's a 10 year plus engagement that you're signing off, right? And you're saying, I'm going to dedicate this time to you, investor, to make you money, make us money too. So in thinking about that part, um, I think I, I took a step back and thinking about it from two, two directions. One was what drives me in my life, especially after having gone through such loss and quite a bit of struggle in life. And the other one is, do I have what it takes? Um, on the personal side, it's really become very clear that what drives me is creating general wealth and community and not for the wealth in itself, uh, but in what it can do and the ripple effects that it causes. I think it's, that's my personal mission. I'm definitely mission driven in my investments, um, career, but as I wear just my VC hat, it's 
where can I make most money for my LPs, right? Where are we going to make the most? And in, in my opinion, and where can I make the most for my LPs? And to me, when I think about that question, it's, it has to be something that's aligned with who I am. My fund should be a reflection about who I am. I'm all about community. I am a community builder. I am a creator. I am living my own thesis. The fund itself is community driven. And so for me, it was okay. And, and breaking it down even further for those listening who may be interested in starting a fund, usually you think of four different elements when starting a fund. What is your sourcing? And these are questions that LPs will ask you. What's your sourcing strategy? How do you select companies? How do you win them? And how do you steward them? And before I launched the fund, I had run another fund with a similar thesis. And so these answers are a little bit almost already there, but you know, I have to answer sourcing. So it's definitely my brand and it's definitely a community of 60,000 plus members of engaged founders, funders, and friends. That's your top of funnel, right? When you talk about selecting and my portfolio construction is 75 companies, you have to think about what experience do, do I have in terms of driving that kind of volume of investment. And I dig from all of the different um, programs that I've been in, scout programs, accelerators. We launched four accelerators at Backstage to One. So I definitely know how to do volume investing. And in six years, right, 91 portfolio companies. So leveraging all of that experience and applying it using no code, low code, streamlining processes so that you actually filter through and get to the best companies and you invest in them. Having done your due diligence and references, I do not do those like, oh my God, this deal is so hot. You have to sign tomorrow. I don't do that. And then from a winning perspective, you know, it's, it's, I, I had to ask myself like, what, um, why, why do companies want to come to me? If they're community-driven founders, it's a lot of like, hey, one of the things that people love is I'm always talking about the topic. I'm always talking to experts in the space. I'm always talking to other founders. That's my portfolio, majority of my portfolio. So those insights are really helpful lending to it because community-driven companies really are going from community, go to community to go to, to uh, or go to market to go to community. It's spending time on how do you leverage um, community to help with the growth of your company, because it should always be tied back to that, right? Because that's, that's the kind of the point of the game. Then there's other things like the fundraising part with the different tools, a startup investor matching tool um, to connect in, uh, founders with, with investors. And that's been wildly successful, the, the platform that we've had. And so people like that and they have access to this, they have access to my network. And then finally, the the brand and marketing. So I, I do think that maybe no one's told me directly, but they're like, hey, Melina, can you amplify this? And I'm like, sure, if it's community driven and it's going to be helpful to the community, sure. Um, so those are kind of like the different um, things that before even starting. Um, but knowing that I have the space a community that I serve and it helps me um, was certainly one of the one of the elements that gave me confidence in launching, going back to your original question around how do you decide to bring in the community to do your fundraise? Um, that's how uh, it, it's been built organically over time. Um, we're all aligned in my opinion, or most of us, I should say. And, and I've seen, I really believe that we're going to build something really great at Ghana's Ventures uh, because of the community. And I'm excited about it.
Absolutely. I can feel your excitement already. Um, but speaking of, you know, community, nowadays, attention is an expensive commodity. Everyone is trying to buy for your attention from your phone apps to building communities. Let's talk about the commodification or uh, the importance of getting eyeballs on whatever it is you're doing um, and how that has changed over time. And, and the, for context, I'm asking because you have a huge Twitter following, you've got a decent like LinkedIn following, you have the attention, you have eyeballs on you and you can monetize that, right? You can leverage that, you can build community around that. Um, so do you think we're moving into a world where if you don't have eyeballs on you or attention, uh, or, you know, you're not part of this attention economy, that it'll be hard to get anything off the ground. In other words, you have to have a brand or a name for yourself. Or do you think there's still room for the startup founder that has 100 followers on Instagram or the GP that has 50 followers on LinkedIn to still get yeah. something off the ground without their, the, the attention around them? I, I would have to say that you do not need it. Uh, my thesis is investing in community-driven companies, and I'm bullish on community-driven companies, but do you need to have a community in order to succeed? Uh, yes. Do you need followers? I don't know. It's mm. I, The difference between uh, followers and a community are different, and to me, but, but I'm very biased, right? So when I think about sales, I think if you're going to be in business, you're selling to someone or to, to, to some entity, right? And to me, you need a congregate of those to be able to be successful. And to me, I would call that a community. And communities can look very different, uh, but ultimately it's a group of people or organizations that have aligned values and some sort of something that pulls them together. It could be as simple as we have the same problem or we have the same affinity to something, interest or something like that, or maybe same, you know, same something that brings us together. I think that you need to have that in order to be successful, whether you call it a community or you call it a, a targeted uh, customer set. And, and you could just have a very transactional way of doing business, which is totally fine. I mean, when you talk about product, product-led growth, it's kind of at that, uh, at, towards the direction of community, but it's also kind of hands-off, could be transactional we start to get into the human side. And so for me, anything that has sales needs community, but the fan, the fans, the followers, all these things, I think the answer is it depends. Um, if you ask, do you need this to be successful? If you are a community-driven fund manager investing in community-driven companies and you're all about community and you don't have a community, does make sense. If, you're, if your whole business is, a creator, influencer um, business, and you don't have that, it doesn't make sense. But maybe you have something that doesn't require that. Like I, I was just talking to a friend and she's uh, doing due diligence on this new form of protein, right? Do you need a community? I, I would think to some degree, right? Like who are the scientists and who's going to buy this and all this, but you don't necessarily maybe need a Twitter following for that. So I think it just, it just depends. Yeah, no, I love that. And actually on the topic of due diligence, how do you go about doing it? Cause I'm sure now you're getting, you know, hundreds of deals thrown your way. Are you spending 40, 50% of your time looking through decks and then trying to call a scientist to double check that the, you know, the science behind this, this product is correct. And like, how do you go about organizing your due diligence? And then do you do it all yourself or do you outsource that to a third party to do on your behalf? 
Yeah, so for any listeners who would like to be an associate for Ghana's Ventures, please apply. <laughs> Go to ghanas.vc and apply. We are looking for help. Um, I'll tell you what it is now. And I am doing it all myself at this time, but it's definitely highly leveraging no code and low code. So I have a, a page, um, a form you fill out. Now, I'll, I'll explain a little bit if you really want to nerd out on it. Um, but high level, here's what it is. We filter first for thesis fit. If you're not a fit, we'll let, and like if it's a stark black and white, you're not a fit, we'll let you know. And we'll say, hey, like, we want to help you though. So go to the startup investor matching tool and see if we can find you some, some intros there. If you are maybe a fit, then it goes to the next level where I will do some scoring. Um, if depending on the score, uh, we have like a, a range that we, we deem acceptable. We'll request a call in which we do another scoring series of questions, depending on how we do there. We then ask for uh, additional information to do due diligence and, and do uh, a few reference checks at, at a minimum three. And then after that, if there's still full conviction, we'll write the check. Um, this is all enabled through no code. So as soon as one thing is done, it's automated to go to the next and we're capturing everything um, within forms. So, and we have it be a co-creating, a co-creative process where the founder is helping us out with different information and it's all like online. It's not via email, it's through forms. And that helps aggregate all the data, also manage it and be able to then tabulate like what are we looking at and what makes the most sense. Um, and we also have uh, the different stages and a different um, probability of like well, like confidence level. And so that, that's a little bit uh, around that, but um, you definitely need a, a good system and leverage technology if you're if you're doing it solo. It's very much like a, a bit of an accelerator intake approach. Uh, but with some traditional VC magic on top of it. Oh, I love that VC magic. You got to share some of that magic or those magic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so actually on that note, so I've seen now in this sort of craze or bubble of VC, as some might call it, that people aren't doing as much due diligence and that things might be overvalued perhaps. And we're about to yeah. maybe go into a bit of a bear market and things of that nature. What's your take on the current state of venture capital? And then what's your outlook for the next sort of two to three years? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I think we find ourselves in a bit of a market correction, market adjustment period. And we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, but most people are fearing, especially where the, the stock market goes, there's influence in what happens everywhere else, right? So if I, if th if I think about it right now, um, and literally was just asked yesterday about how has the Russia-Ukraine war impacted LP fundraising for emerging fund managers? And I, I think the answer to your question can be dependent on ge geography because I'm not, I know I'm not feeling it because I'm investing in LATAM US, uh, but I certainly know that my, my peers in Europe, uh, it's a different topic and that's changing the behavior check sizes of, of the LP VC ecosystem. And so there's certainly some of these market things that we don't know what's going to happen, but certainly have implications. But look, if you have gas prices increasing, you have the stock market going crazy, there's definitely going to be a shift. 
what I've noticed is on the traditional LP side, um, there's more of a concern about the capital allocations that have that are being called by um, by funds in their portfolios to do re-ups. And I think that from the US perspective is what I've heard more about. And these are more institutionals. Uh, and then traditional in general, I think that they're taking a little bit more time and doing their due diligence because of what you're saying, right? Like what is happening? And when I'm assessing your, your, portfolio, your, your uh, track record, you know, the last few years has, have been, you know, great market. So there's been lots of markup. So how do we, so I know that LPs are looking at that. And how does that, how does that um, impact what we're doing? Well, you know, it, it really makes us rethink about the valuations and then also kind of a wait and hold kind of pattern that I've seen some investors take in the U.S., while there's other opportunities, and this is where, with you asking, like, where do you think it's going, definitely think a couple of things. One is um, different markets are, are, are acting in different ways, and there's opportunity in some in different ways. And for me, that's emerging markets. It's actually one of my subthesis. I have the futures multi-hyphenated, where we're all doing multiple things, whether it's for pleasure or because we have to pay bills and we can't afford it. Um, there's the futures cash list, there's the emerging markets. And for me, it's LATAM, right? So when we talk about valuations and all of these things, and did you invest in a company that was super hot and their valuation was like a hundred million dollars and they were just an idea on a napkin? I think that's going to bite those investors on, on the butt or maybe not. I don't know, but I was never one of those for our last fund. Uh, we always, did our very best to stay at a $10 million post-money valuation. And we we did pretty good in terms of, even though the market is like super crazy, um, I still very much take a look at valuation. That is really important as part of the due diligence because you don't want these down rounds, which I'm sure we will see. Emerging markets offer a lot of the time better economics. So as I'm traveling through LATAM and looking at companies here, I love that like, you can get post money valuations that appreciate that are up to $3 million. Like what, you know, that's, that's like unheard of for like a good, you know, so there's, there's different things to look at the other, the last thing I'll mention, which I think is really cool. And I'm super excited about is this emergence of community driven fund managers and angel LPs that want to work in community and that are just like, look, we're not old school, traditional LPs. We're with it. We're woke. And here's our money. Take our money. We want to give you our money. And I'm just like, okay, cool. But first, let's make sure we're values aligned. You believe in the power community and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of things happening. And it's really dynamic. I'm super excited to see what happens. Absolutely. Well, you and I could talk for days on this topic, um, <laughs> but I want to make sure that we bring you in for part two at some point later on. Um, if there are any pieces of advice, one or two things that you could leave for two audiences. Number one is startup founders. And then number two is uh, fellow venture capitalists. What would those pieces of advice be? Mm. I think... That's a that's a really big and broad question. I think for I'd have to get a little bit more granular. So early stage, I would love to give a shout out to Ladam founders because I've been here and working with a lot of them. Um, not to think too small and to always know that in order to grow, you have to expand across the geography. 
and that there is capital out there for you. And I think I would actually say the same thing um, for underestimated founders in the U.S. Um, and really anywhere that although it may feel really hard because it is, <laughs> it's not just that you're feeling it, it really is. And there's biases against us, that there are those in the community that are looking out to fund the best companies, regardless of what the status quo has been. On the emerging fund manager side, I think it's more of like, this is our time and we don't have to follow the rules and we can build a new face of venture capital, how we deem it to be the best uh, shape it can take. And, and that we have the power and that it's not about how much money we came from or what schools we went to, but more about how what how we see our future, what we want it to be, and how we come together and make that happen. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and we'll have you back again sometime soon. Thank you.